Well, good morning. I wonder sometimes about uh, the Christmas Carol writers, if he's sitting there going, frankincense. <laughs> what rhymes with frankincense? <clears throat> if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. This is not the text I'm preaching from, but I want to read it as a backdrop to where we're going to be going. So, uh, Matthew chapter 1. And if you would look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place in order that what was that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph got up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I pray for your help. I ask of you, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, bless the declaration of your word, the proclamation of truth. God, I pray that uh, this, this church family, Lord, that you have prepared their hearts to receive the seed of the word. And that, God, you would encourage them. You would refresh them as they've been here, Lord, with your spirit in them, with your word in their hands. Lord, that letter and this preaching will not mean anything apart from your spirit applying it to them. And so, God, I'm keenly aware of my dependency as a preacher this morning. If you will not do that, Lord, I don't know what to say. And so, Father, I I plead with you this morning that your Spirit would accompany your Word and bless the body of Jesus Christ, that He might be glorified on this Christmas Eve. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, if I'm Joseph, and I lay down, and this is what's been taking place with my wife, well, soon-to-be wife, and I find out, okay, so she's pregnant, it's not by me, I'm going to do away with her, 
but I still love her, so I don't want to disgrace her. So I want to do this quietly. So she's not harmed, and everything's just kind of dealt with, and I'll go on with my life. And in a dream, in this vision, an angel comes to him and declares to him what's going on. And it's obviously clearly vivid, and, and he gets it. This is not something that passes by, and he wakes up going, man, what a weird dream, and then divorces her. No, rather instead, he wakes up and acts upon it. The Lord spoke to me. The Lord made this clear to me in this vision, and so I'm going to go through with this. But you know what, guys? I can't help but think after that dream, Joseph went and by himself sat down and thought, how is our baby going to save people from sin? Because notice the passage doesn't say with great clarity in this vision of how he's going to do it. He just says he's going to do it. If you notice verse 21, I'll read it one more time. And she'll bear a son. Okay, I got that. She's pregnant. And you shall call his name Jesus. Okay, typically the father names the son. This makes sense. For he'll save his people from their sins. Joseph, beloved, would have a clear enough grasp from his culture, from his training, and from the Old Testament scriptures to know, apart from the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. How's my son going to take care of our sins? The answer to that question is all over the scripture. Just sit down and read Isaiah 53. Just go the first verse to the last verse of that chapter, and it has such clarity in reference to the sacrifice of this Christ. Our New Testament is flooded with the explanation to this question. And so this morning, I want to answer Joseph's question. The question I would have, and you would probably have to some extent, how will he do that? How will he accomplish that? And here's what I want to do. I want to take you to one verse and I just want to soak in that one verse together, have it clear in our minds, and may the Lord bless the preaching of the Word. So if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Christmas and Easter get tricky for preachers because they start searching their Bibles for what did I not do last year? or the year before, or the year before, or the year before. And i got to be honest with you, sometimes there are Christmas services or Easter services um, where I've, I've struggled over the years. Which passage should I go to? Obviously, I'm not going to do Philippians 2, because Mark already read that, and Don already read that. <clears throat> and I, I'm, I'm wondering, where should I go? John chapter 1 would be a good one. That'd be a good one. But i got to tell you, this year... 2 Corinthians 5.21 was clearly where I was going, without a doubt. I've been in this passage and thinking on this passage, to be quite honest with you, for the last couple of weeks. Apart from sermon preparation, this passage has just been heavy on my heart because I believe it is one of the clearest gospel verses in your Bible. It is one of the clearest gospel verses in your Bible. It's one of the most pregnant verses in Scripture. 
as you see just all that is in this one verse of Scripture. It reminds me of uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul when he was still a college professor, a seminary professor. He would give a... Um, a, uh, some, some homework to the students. And as they came in, he would read one passage, one verse of Scripture and say, now I want you to go find 50 insights into that one verse and then come back. You got a week. We'll see you back in class in a week. And he said typically they would do pretty good. He got 10, 15, 20. Then they'd go over to their neighbors in the dorms. Hey, what'd you get? Oh, I didn't get that one. Here's four I, you didn't get. And they would eventually get there. And eventually, finally, they'd come back and they'd say, Okay, Prof, we've got 50 insights. And then Dr. Sproul would say, wonderful. Now next week, I need you to bring 50 more from the same verse. And what he was seeking to do in his explanation was he wanted to press home, you can't find the bottom as you meditate in, this, in the Word of God, and particularly in passages like the one before us this morning in chapter 5, verse 21 of 2 Corinthians. Listen to this verse. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Beloved, I believe that is one of the clearest gospel verses in the Bible. Because it gets directly to the heart of substitution. Joseph, you want to know how this baby of yours will save people from their sins? Well, imagine sitting down with Joseph over a cup of whatever they drank and explain to him this idea that your son is actually the son of God. And he's going to lead an absolutely perfect life and eventually he will suffer and die and absorb the wrath of Almighty God in place of all those that place their faith in him. Well, first, guys, here's my first point I want to kind of bring to your attention. This is a Trinitarian game plan. This is a Trinitarian game plan. This is not the Father forcing the Son. No, um, I understand the passage says that he made him become sin. Well, it does not take a whole lot of handling of your New Testament to come to the conclusion this, the Lord Jesus was an absolute willing participant in all of this plan. As the Father purposes, the Son pur purchases, and the Spirit applies. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the divine Trinity, the Godhead, has this game plan of a rescue mission. This is not something that they're simply doing uh, as, as uh, just a plan B, plan C. Well, now what? Well, now what? No, the Scripture speaks with such clarity in reference to this is the, the way it's going to happen. There's no stumbling over the game plan for the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And I would say particularly in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, how he speaks about his desire to do the will of him who sent him. 
And but Jesus says it's his will to do the Father's will. Do you see there's a beautiful unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? The Father purposes, the Son purchases, the Spirit applies. All three were in absolute perfect harmony and unity in this decree. And I'll give you a, pa- a few passages to jot down. In Isaiah 53, it's very clear that the Father bruises the Son, the Father sends the Son, the Father accomplishes this by sending forth His Son. In John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, the Lord Jesus says with great clarity that He's there to do the will of the Father. In John chapter 17, uh, one of the holy of holies of passages where the Lord Jesus We have the entire prayer of Christ before the Father and the way He talks. There's no the Father forcing Him. He's a willing man. He's one who's laying His life down. Remember, He says, as the Good Shepherd, I lay my life down for the sheep. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down for them. Philippians chapter 2, the passage that, that Brother Don and Brother Mark both read for us, that it says that, Jesus came in the form of a man. He he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. So the Creator came and became His creation, took on the form of His creation. And we can look at that, and at times we can become so hallmarky in how we look at the Christmas story. But beloved, in, in some way, we must have it clear in our minds, the incarnation is the humiliation of Jesus Christ. For him to take on flesh and come to this dirty pit is a humiliating aspect of Christ. We celebrate it because of the purpose, because of the decree, because of the, the divine desire to save us. And that's a glorious thing to celebrate. But don't for a second think that when Christ came to this earth, immediately he said, wow, this is great that now I'm just like my creation. No, the scripture does not, it never speaks like that. He made himself low. But then there's John chapter 14 where he says, if I go to the Father, I'm not going to leave you alone. I give you another helper. I'm going to give my spirit to you. So now we have the Father purposing, the Son purchasing, the Spirit coming in and applying. We hear about the regeneration of the Spirit of God as the Spirit comes in and makes us new and changes our heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Beloved, this salvation is an absolute sovereign decree by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to accomplish exactly what they want. And that reality, you guys, is one that causes me to feel so tiny when I think of of just as a little boy sitting in the living room beside my mom and, and she leading me to Christ and me tasting that salvation. And thinking now, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit purposed this. They purchased this. They applied this to this little pain in the neck sinner and took me and made me his own. This is a Trinitarian game plan. I've been acted upon by God. You think about every single aspect of his creation from the glory of the heavens to all people to the majesty of the sea and you think of all of that and the sovereign of the universe comes directly into my life and calls me to himself 
Knock you over with a feather when you think of the sovereign doing that. And so what I want, the reason I draw you to this, this idea of this covenant among the Trinity of redemption, I want you to notice in verse 21 that he made him who knew no sin. If you fill in those pronouns, God the Father made God the Son who knew no sin to be sin on behalf of those that placed their faith in him so that they might become the righteousness of God in the Son. That's not hard to do if you read the passage. It's pretty clear. It jumps off the text. If you have some grasp of theology, if you recognize the fact that Jesus was not satisfying Satan, Jesus was not seeking to, to, uh, he was not pressured by the Father. No, this is the Father sending forth the Son and the Spirit applying in the life of the Christian. They're all in cahoots. He made him... And please notice the description of the Lord Jesus in this text, who knew no sin. Experientially, nobody in this room knows what that means. Nobody here has any clue what it's like to know no sin. The scripture says that we are born in sin. David says, my mother conceived me in sin. We're told that we are born sinful. All have fallen short of the glory of God. That's clear in the word of God. But Jesus wasn't. This virgin birth of Jesus, this incarnation, is the majesty of God coming in the form of a servant to this earth and not taking on that sinful nature. Surely he's taking on the sinful fallenness of this world, but his nature is not a sinful nature. He does not come through the line of Adam. No sin was found in him. Now, if you would, please take your Bible, and I want to give you a few verses, okay? John chapter 8, 46. John chapter 8, 46. I'm going to move a little quickly through this. Um, But I want you to hear some of these passages because I'll say this. I think at times cardinal doctrines of Christianity get taken for granted and we start to think, we just assume, well, of course that's true. Well, of course that's true. But we don't go back to some of the classic passages that are of necessity to prove that truth. Okay? So John 8, 46, in particular, the sinless nature of Jesus. I get to talking and I don't turn my Bible. Okay. Notice what Christ says. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Now, you imagine if one of us said that? (laughs) Anybody here? Anybody? Which one of you convicts? No, I would never ask. It'd be too easy. Jesus knows the answer to the question. Jesus knows if he calls you out and goes, okay, which one of you convicts me of sin? Answer, nobody. Absolutely nobody. He says, if I speak the truth, why do you not believe me in one of these fiery discourses he had during his earthly ministry? Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. There's there's a, a bunch of other passages that would speak to this. I'm just calling a few out to draw your attention to. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. I'm going to start at 14 because it's too good. It's just too rich, all right? 
So Hebrews 4.14. Listen to this, guys. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. I would just say Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 11. But one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Look at chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 26. Listen to this description. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. We use the phrase in our day pretty commonly. We make reference to innocent people. Well, those are the innocent people. Let me just say this, beloved. Within the leather of my Bible, no man is ever called an innocent people, an innocent person. Jesus Christ is the one called the innocent person in the Scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verse 22. And this is a quote looking back to Isaiah. So I'm going to start at 21. For to this you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Who, referencing Jesus, did no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Who being reviled was not reviling in return, while suffering he was uttering no threats, but kept entrusting himself, catch this, to him who judges righteously. Jesus entrusting himself to the Father, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness by his wounds, You were healed. This Jesus knew no sin. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. I'll read 4 and 5. Everyone who does sin also does lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. There is no sin. Jesus came into this sinful fallen world with no sin nature of his own. Roughly 33 years of living in this world, fully God and fully man, the mystery of the incarnation, not once sinning against anyone and not once sinning against God. Now consider all the opportunities to sin in 33 minutes. 
33 years. And here's the thing, beloved. Let us be careful not to empty the power of that passage in Hebrews that says, tempted in every way we are. Because our response wants to be, yeah, he's the God-man. That's not real. Well, don't empty that text of, of, the, of the potency, of the power that's in that passage. It says, tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. I don't know exactly how all of that works. All I know is that too often Christians empty that text as if he wasn't truly tempted. That's not what the passage says. And the implication of the passage is therefore he can sympathize with you. Well, he couldn't sympathize with you if it wasn't a genuine temptation. And so let us be so careful to just have our theological assumption without reading what the passage says and reading how the writer, the author, applies that. Not once sinning all of his life. Little kid, he ate his peas. Twelve-year-old, pick up your, he may not have had his own separate room, but uh, pick up your room. Okay. The one time we can find when he's a child where his parents are struggling, they find him, remember he goes back and he's there with the teachers of the law, and they're confounded by this guy. How, how does this kid know this? And Jesus' response to his parents, I do not believe in any way, was him being disrespectful when he says, didn't you know I would be about my father's business? Beloved, there's a fantastic mystery here that Dan Mason doesn't, I can't say it, I can't put into words for you, I'm sorry. How the God-man existed from birth, from conception to 33, is magnificent. And I bow to it. But this is, nonetheless, the truth. All these opportunities, the scripture says, not once sinning. Him, he made him who knew no sin. Ever. Ever. No sin found in the precious Savior. So go back to 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And let's see what happens to the one who knew no sin. He made him who knew no sin... And these words are added in the English to help to be sin on our behalf. So he made him who knew no sin, sin. Kind of a direct literal translation. The one that knew no sin, sin. And here is the um, brain buster for the week for me. How does the father make the son sin? How does the Father make the Son sin? The perfect justice of God must be satisfied in order for anyone to be justified before Him. A sinner can't pay for the sinner. There has to be someone that is perfect to take the place of others and absorb the penalty for their crime. Who's the scapegoat? Who is that person? Who will do that? Jesus Christ is the one who became sin for us. No sin found in Him, and yet fallen humanity is pressed upon Him. 
So here's the question, or I guess kind of the summation that I've landed on in my, thought, in my thinking on this is, who needs to see him as sin? Who needs to recognize him as sin? If you do, it doesn't make any difference. Nobody cares what you think. In that sense of the, great, of the, uh, the final judge, uh, judgment. Who needs to see him as sin? Who needs to recognize the son as sin? Well, when you die, nobody else is in charge of judging you but God. God being satisfied is number one, is the only one. If somebody tells you, well, you're not that bad of a guy, I think you'll be fine, you know, you help out your neighbors and dot, dot, dot. Well, that's a great sentiment, but that doesn't mean anything on Judgment Day. There's one, one opinion that carries the day, and it is that of God. So please notice in the passage, beloved, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. The father recognizes the son as sin. When Jesus Christ is on that cross, the commitment between the father and the son is that the son is there paying for sin. But the fantastic part, the awe-striking part, is it's not his. Jesus is there on purpose by his will and by the will of his Father to take the payment for another. It's not his. Remember, he knew no sin. There is no payment for Jesus. If you were to ask this question, 33 years of living this perfect life, not, no sin whatsoever, no natural sin, there's no sinful nature in you, and then you're going to pay the penalty. We're told, remember, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as he absorbs the Father's wrath on the cross? Why? The big question, guys, that we should be asking is, why is he doing this? Why is he doing that? The reason he's doing that is he is the substitutionary atoning sacrifice for sin. That's a term that sounds dusty, theological seminary classroom. I get it, but... This is the reality, beloved, the substitutionary atoning sacrifice for sin. As they beat and whip his body, as they crucify him, as his body is up there, naked, broken, shattered, he has the scorn of mankind and the wrath of his father at the exact same time, and the Father, when he looks upon him, sees sin. That's what it means that he made him to be sin. Remember, Jesus never sinned, so we can't say he made him to be a sinner. He never did sin. But he made him to be sin. Before the courtroom of the sovereign of the universe, the Father, the Father looks on the Son and sees Sin. And as he sees it, he also sees payment for the sin. Why? Because he never sinned. He's perfect. He's absolutely righteous. And God accepts nobody unless there's perfect righteousness. And there he is. I see sin, but I see perfect righteousness. Simultaneously. Same guy, same cross. On this planet, in human history, I see righteousness. But at the same time, I see sin. Same guy. He is both the just and the justifier. 
He's the one who declares, but he's also the one who's taken the punishment. How all these things, beloved, all kind of uh, line up into one individual at one moment in, in human history is just mind-boggling to me. Because I see his love, I see his grace, I see his mercy, I see his wrath, I see his justice, and it's all mingled, all present in that crucifixion. No sin found in him, but he made him sin. And so, you go back to Joseph, and Joseph says, yeah, but how's he going to do it? And I wonder if to some extent the answer would be, Joseph, if I were to tell you how he's going to do it, you wouldn't believe me anyway. And yet, remember, Simeon told Mary and Joseph that there's a sword that's going to pierce your heart in regards to this baby. As that mom sat there and watched those little feet that she took care of pierced and the little hands that she took care of pierced. And so, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. Now here's, let me, let me take a couple steps back, okay, theologically. And I'm going to just put my foot on some very, very holy, holy, holy ground to think of unbroken relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity past. And in that moment, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, we, we see it depicted in movies where his body gets beat up and, and oh, it's, it's horrible. And it is horrible. But an eternal relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit severed for a time as he's upon the cross absorbing the wrath of his Father. Beloved, I don't know what to do with that. I don't even know how to put words around what that, how that impacts Christ when the wrath of the Father is upon him. I don't, I, I'm astounded at what's taking place between the Father and Son in that moment as he's dying on that cross. I, it makes me just want to get alone somewhere and just find myself in prayer to consider what's taking place between the Trinity for my salvation. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. For who? Well, look, look at the passage. It says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our, our behalf. And contextually, the hour is continually in reference to this church in Corinth. I mean, you can certainly open that up as Christ laid his life down. Uh, for God so loved the world and laid his life down and for every believer who believes on him. But it's interesting to think about it in this context in reference to uh, the church in Corinth. Our. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. This is for us. Now, don't ever miss the capstone is the, is the glory of the Father. Jesus' greatest passion and desire is to glorify the Father. That, hands down, the Bible screams that. But how is he going to glorify the Father? In what manner will he glorify the Father? 
The scripture says he glorifies the Father by laying his life down for the sheep, by laying his life down, by dying for them. Jesus magnifies and glorifies his Father by walking through this very, very difficult game plan and decree to save a people. And so he's doing this on our behalf. And the depiction of humanity in your Bible is pretty bleak. We like to flatter ourselves, but the reality is we are a sinful people. A lost people. Backbiters. Haters of God. Malicious. There's, there's so many different words used to describe all humanity. Broken, lost, sinful mankind that hates God by nature. We've been transferred from death into life. The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to all, saved by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus. He's doing this in our stead. Now, here's where I find myself pressed emotionally in my mind and heart that the sins I did last week or yesterday, Christ's body broken and absorbing the wrath of the Father for what I did yesterday. Now here's the thing, you guys, is that that's so surreal, that's so ethereal, so far away, we just kind of, ah, Dan, that, that's just too close and I, it's too far away. No, let it, let it sink into your heart, beloved. The sins you did yesterday, he's on that cross, paying for that, suffering for that, absorbing the wrath of the Father for that. Let it be personal, because I don't think it really grips the heart of the believer if it's just this big blob of black that he died for. No, these are actual sins. These are actual things that we've done. They're actual, the nature that is in us at birth. This is what Christ is dying for. You, individually, laying his life down for you. He who knew, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We have been transferred from spiritual death to spiritual life. The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed, accredited to all who are saved by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is no righteousness apart from Jesus' righteousness. Your personal righteousness, in the sense of you do some good things, is not a competitor to the righteousness of Jesus. There is no competitor to the righteousness of Jesus. It is salvation through Him and through Him alone. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Romans 10, 1 to, 1 to 4. And Philippians 3, 9. The righteousness of God is a title given to you, beloved, in this passage. Do you hear what it says? That you might become the righteousness of God. That's a description of you in this passage if you're in Christ. So think about 
All that has transpired, this is what we call the great exchange, where Christ has exchanged with us as he absorbed the wrath in our stead for our sin, and we now are declared righteous in Christ before God the Father. So remember, a few moments ago, I made reference to the Father looking at the Son on the cross, and in that moment, he saw sin. Beloved, this morning, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, he looks on you and sees perfect righteousness. Not yours. I know, all of us look in the mirror and we go, ah, uh, <laughs> I don't think so. Well, it's not yours. It's his righteousness. It's the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that the Father sees. And remember, who needs to see it? Who's the judge? Who's the one that we, his opinion carries the day? The most important opinion there is, is God the Father. And so God the Father sees God the Son taking our sin, and now God the Father sees us as sinners, now as righteous. And notice the last little two words there that are vital to our understanding theologically of all things. In Him. I heard years ago uh, a preacher said that if you wanted to sum up all of the Apostle Paul's doctrine, it would line up in two words. In Christ. If you consistently press and press and how are you going to, yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what about this? Yeah, what about the, in Christ. In Christ. It's in Him and it's in Him alone. I've got nothing apart from Him and I have everything in Him. If He gave us His Son, He will freely give us all things. God's perfect justice, His perfect wrath, His perfect love, and His perfect grace, beautifully present at the cross. Guys, there is nothing more important for you and I to have clear, to have crystal clear in our thinking than this. Now, that's a huge statement. I understand that. But I believe that with all my heart. There is nothing more important for you to have clear in your thinking than if you are in Christ or out of Christ. And so, may we glory in this one and only Savior. In Genesis 3.15, we were told that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent at Genesis chapter 12. We're told the seed of Abraham will bless every family. Hundreds of messianic prophecies speaking to the one who will come and accomplish all of this. And then Old Testament saints who receive this baby and see the coming of Christ as Simeon's old gnarly hands wrap around that little baby and looks him in the face. Today I've seen my salvation. And you ask the question that Joseph would ask, how? Beloved, this is how. This is the rescue mission. This is how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit planned to take you to heaven. But it's more than simply to go to a pretty place. He called you to be His. See, if I go to heaven and the Lord's not there, I'm not that interested. Now, it's not bad, but I'm not that interested. I want Him. My, my heart thirsts for Him. I want to see this Christ. I want to embrace this Christ. 
if, with all that he has done, all that he has taken, all that he's accomplished on my behalf, I can speak to him now, but I, I can't wait for the day I get to lay eyes on him. Take him and be taken by him. Jesus Christ is the one and only magnificent Savior for all mankind. And I stand astounded that He sought us in this way. Let's, let's pray.